Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. You guys, we are in full swing of things for October, our event that we've been talking about, October 24th, the bridge between reading literacy and the consequences of falling behind. We are a little over two weeks away. Two weeks and some change. Over, you missed your chance, but you can still purchase online and at the door. Tickets are $40. All proceeds go to our nonprofit, the Inclusive Education Project, which provides free legal services to clients in California. Yeah, basically all over. But you guys, I'm really excited because we're getting some amazing desserts being donated and I can't wait. I'm just going to say coffee bar because he has a whole setup and that's amazing. Yeah. Appetizers, we know we need to feed you. We know you need to have drinks. So that is all included in your ticket. There's opportunity drawings. It's after work and there's really no excuse because we're going to have babysitters. So if you need to bring your kids, no excuse about not having a babysitter. Bring them, leave them. Whatever you need to do. But, you know, we'd like to see you there. We had a lot of people last year who couldn't make it, and they were very sad that they couldn't make it. They had to listen to it and listen to how much fun everyone was having. I'm not trying to guilt trip you, but it's a lot of fun. Plus, we'd love to meet you. Yeah, exactly. And we wanted to talk a little bit before we get to our guest today, uh, Barbara Aerosmith-Young, which just sounds like a rock star name. But before we get to her, we wanted to talk about a couple other rock stars that will be on our panel this year. Yes. So our first panelist, Dr. George Tucker, who's a licensed psychologist and who has practiced for 45 years, um, various outpatient, inpatient, residential treatment settings, has 30 years of experience working with patients with co-occurring disorders, alcohol, substance abuse, mental health conditions. He wrote a book, uh, Problem Children, It's Not Always the Parents' Fault, and has been praised by professionals in the general public. Uh, He's been awarded all these awards. We're really excited for him to talk about the mental health side of kids falling behind in school. He's going to really be able to shed a lot of light, especially with all the experience and all, I'm sure the hundreds of kids, geez, scared me. Um, That was Liam, if you heard that. uh, Hundreds, if not thousands of children that he's seen in and outside of the system. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we have the renowned Kathy Johnson, who's been on our podcast before. You guys have heard her. You love her. I think you've heard her a couple times. No, or you will clear a couple? Oh, yeah. She's on. supposed to come back on. But she's so busy <laughs> in the world. That's okay. She's changing one kid at a time. Yeah. And then more so. So if you haven't heard us talk about her before, she is a licensed speech and language pathologist and has a BA and master's in communication disorders with a minor in child development and has a special day class credential. So she's been everywhere, who initially focused on treating young children with speech language disorders, but then broadened the scope to young children who returned to her for help in reading. So she founded the Johnson Academy of Therapeutic Learning, which offers effective learning alternatives to the one-size-fits-all approach of mainstreaming in the educational system that we see today and provides a variety of evidence-based treatments. So she's going to be really our 
quote unquote literacy specialist to really look at the problem of literacy. She's got some amazing statistics, an amazing plan of action that she's actually implementing in some school districts that she wants implemented more. So we're really excited for her to really bridge that gap between not just talking about the problem, but the solutions too. Exactly. And I think that that's why our next panelist, Ellis, who you had heard on our previous podcast. Just a couple weeks ago, I think, right? Yep the director of the of the STEM education at STEM Cubed Academy, which opened up in Irvine, and we talked to him a little bit about it. They are under the amazing umbrella of the HELP Group, and Ellis, I think, is going to bring a different perspective of the solution. We didn't want to just create the problem. We didn't create the problem, but we didn't want to just talk about the problem of reading literacy. We wanted to see what the solutions are. And I think if you heard our podcast with him, he just has a really different approach for some of our kiddos with different social and learning differences where it's technology driven, right? So the STEM being the science, technology, engineering, and math, being able to have those students who are curious, who are tactile, like they want to make things and their minds just work Mm -hmm. a little differently. You know, how can we bring those unique strengths that they have? So that's really exciting. And then, of course, somebody else that will be able to speak to thinking outside of the box is Javier from the COGX. We actually had him on the podcast a couple months ago. We had heard him speak regarding this new way of, you know, their research and developmental organization. We've talked about how cognitive science, how are we getting to create these programs that are targeted for learning? And it's just like learning to learn. Like that's all his, like COGX is. And and obviously they have a program and I think Dives deep into the brain. Right. And his own unique, in which he talked about on the podcast, upbringing where, you know, he was labeled as someone that was just never going to amount to anything because his cognitive levels were just so low. So I think he brings a unique perspective of talking about what the problem is and what we can do moving forward. So a lot of what is the problem and a lot of problem solvers that will be on the panel. Yeah. And, you know, all of the event really focuses on this literacy piece and how, you know, kids are falling behind. And, you know, to tie in with that, you know, we're trying to focus on shedding more light to, you know, how the brains develop and how kids learn. And so we're really excited about our guest this week, Barbara Aerosmith-Young, who, like Vicky said, is just a rock star. We talk all about plasticity and how brains learn and how they develop and how we can be better providing learning environments and programs for not just kids that are differently abled, but all kids. And we're just so excited to talk to her. And we're already planning how we can actually meet her in person because she lives in Canada. She's the founder of Aerosmith Programs. And she actually also wrote a book, Woman Who Changed Her Brain. And she talks about, you know, her learning differences and actually Actually how she was able to change her brain so she actually says overcoming her learning differences but I really think it's just getting a grasp on them and what parts of the brain that she could work on so that her brain can work in one cohesive manner and she can really speak to it because you know when she talks about the things that she's helping these kids with like she did it herself first she's been there done that and you know we talk about just labels she likes learning difficulty instead of saying learning disability she thinks labeling kids i think at one point she had said you know it's a life sentence to label these drugs like i mean yeah just our best friend now um, oh absolutely so we hope you guys enjoyed that this intro is long enough 
We will see you at our... Without further ado, enjoy. And we are welcoming Barbara to our podcast today. Barbara, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Okay, so I'm Barbara Aerosmith-Young. I am the founder of Aerosmith School and the Aerosmith program and the author of the international bestseller, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. And I've dedicated my life to really helping individuals overcome learning difficulties, first starting with myself many, many years ago, and now working with educators and children all around the world to basically transform their lives through cognitive programs. I know in your books, I think you talk a little bit about like your story. So growing up, you know, you are very much in this, you experience this yourself, um, these challenges. How did you get into like your post-secondary education and, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to do this research. I want to really dive deep into this and go to school for this. Really, this work kind of started when I was in grade one, in a sense. I was identified in grade one, and this was in the 1950s. So there wasn't even a concept of a learning disability or a learning difficulty. So I was identified in grade one as having a mental block and being kind of literal. I actually thought I had a cube of wood, like block, in my head. And I overheard my grade one teacher tell my mother really not to expect too much from me, that all of my schooling was going to be a struggle. And I feel like in grade one, I was given a life sentence of suffering and struggle and basically being written off. I struggled to learn how to read, to learn how to write, mathematics. You know, if if it was 12 plus 13, I'd add the three and the one and then the two and then the one. You know, it just didn't mean anything to me. My world was pretty confusing and certainly education was a struggle. My mother, I was very blessed. My mother was an educator and she didn't accept that life sentence. So she used flashcards. She basically taught me how to read and to write and to do basic mathematics. But so I could start to learn, but the learning difficulty was still there. My comprehension was a problem. Everything took me like 10 times longer than other students. So I kind of joke that I became a workaholic in grade one Uh and then My father was a scientist and an inventor, and he had this belief that he instilled in me that, you know, if there's a problem and there's currently no solution in the world to that problem, he said, it's your responsibility to find a solution. So here I am, this little munchkin, right, kind of (laughs) thinking, okay, learning is really difficult, and, and like, how do I find a solution? And no idea as to what that might be, but it it was kind of like being set on a quest, right? And so it was always there in the back of my mind, and certainly, I mean, I had strength, because like, I mean, we know if you have a learning difficulty, often individuals can be gifted in certain areas and have deficits in other areas. So I had a photographic visual memory, I had an auditory verbatim memory. So wow. I got through a lot of school by, you know, I could close my eyes and see my textbook from page one to you know, page 30 or however many pages were there. Right. Incredible. And I could look at exactly the question on the exam and then flip through the pages in my mind and try to find the one that I thought answered that question. Sometimes I did a really good job and, you know, I'd get 100%. Other times I did a really bad match and I'd get like 10%. 
because I didn't really understand, you know, it was just matching. I didn't really right. grasp the concepts, but always with the idea. And it was, you know, and then I went to undergraduate to study child development. And really, I think I was trying to understand, again, what wasn't working for me by studying children mm -hmm. and psychology. And I could see, you know, very early age, you could see students learning very differently. And then ended up going to do my master's in school psychology, which is, you know, the study of how do you identify problems. And it was at that point, not through my traditional schooling, but someone handed me a book, which was Laurie's book, The Man with the Shattered World, that really was what changed my life. Because this was a story of a Russian soldier, Leova Zazetsky, who in World War II had a very localized head wound as a result of an injury. And he kept a journal for a number of years. And Luria, who's a brilliant Russian neuropsychologist, was studying his case. And in this man's journal, he was describing his problems exactly the way in my journal, you know, in Canada, you know, 20 years later was describing my problem. That's yeah, so that's surreal. You're reading this book and you're just like, wait, what? This is my life. It was, it was like, it was my life. And I thought, and now I knew because before I knew I had big problems, but I didn't know where they were coming from, right? Because right. nobody was really looking at the brain. This was 1977. Yeah. So nobody was looking at the brain at that time as a source of learning difficulty. Yeah. So it was like the little light bulb went off and I thought, okay, my father's, you know, quest to solve a problem. You first have to understand, like, actually, what's the nature of the yeah. problem that you're trying to solve? And now I knew, I knew I didn't have a bullet in my head, but I knew that, okay, part of, like, part of my brain isn't working the way it should be working. Right. Um, so that was the first insight. And then at the same time, I just happened to be reading some research coming out of Berkeley, a brilliant psychologist, Mark Rosenschwag, and he was one of these early researchers looking at neuroplasticity, which simply put means, you know, that our brain is plastic, that we can actually change the brain that we're born with. We don't have to necessarily live with it if there are difficulties there. And he was working with rats and showing that, you know, if you put rats in a stimulating environment with like lots of things to interact with, their brains changed physiologically. They became better learners. So I figured if rats can change their brains, surely humans right. have the capacity yeah. to change yeah. their brains. Well, it's so that amazing. Makes, makes sense. Yeah, so amazing that you were born to your family. It was like you were meant to be your father's daughter, that he set you on this quest that he didn't look at, oh, these are the challenges you have. But mm -hmm. no, not only did he have this idea that you should do more than what other people are thinking, but even more than that, right? Setting such high expectations. And if he hadn't have done that and your mom hadn't been so strong to be like, no, we're gonna find a way, you know, would you have figured out that, you know, all these strengths that you have? I mean, and I think that's something that we see with so many kids where we get so pigeonholed on one side that we don't even open ourselves up to the possibility. Absolutely, and that's, you know, to me that's very sad, right, when, you know, a lot of the people I see, they are told, you know, you can't, right, and, you know, I mean, to me, I think this whole concept of neuroplasticity is so promising and so optimistic, like, right. if we can understand that, you know, that we can harness this principle 
and we can address a lot of things that we thought in the past were fixed conditions. Right. I mean, the definition right. of, I don't even like the term learning disability, but certainly we use it in North America. In the Southern Hemisphere, they call it a learning difficulty, which I like more than a disability, but mm. the definition is it's a lifelong condition. So if you're born and have a learning difficulty slash disability, Basically, just like I was in grade one, it's kind right. of like given the life sentence. And the best you can do with, you know, the kind of the current practices mostly is you can work around it. So the idea that, you know, you use your strengths, like I did getting through school, I used my memory to compensate for the difficulty. But it meant, I talk about how I never lived in what I call real time. I lived in lag time because I was always like, you know, five hours behind everybody else in understanding things. And the cost to, you know, my confidence, to my relationships, to my self-esteem, because I never got things like other people did. And yes, you know, with extra work and effort, I could compensate, but it meant, you know, I had less sleep. Yeah, you know, well, at what cost? Yeah, exactly, at what cost? And relationships, because I'm in a conversation with somebody, I don't really understand what they're saying, and I have to walk away and think about it. And maybe two hours later, I think, oh, that's what they meant. But I mean, that person didn't hang around for two hours to wait for me to figure it out. So I was socially isolated. So and that's just, you know, to me, what's so promising. And again, there's still so much to learn. I mean, I just feel like with my work, I'm just uh, scratching the surface. But the possibility of transcription and opening possibilities for people. I work with a lot of adults who say they feel like their careers were chosen for them. They didn't really yeah. choose them because there were so many doors closed and maybe only one door open. So that was kind of a forced choice. Now what they say after the work is there are multiple doors open and maybe they'd make that same choice, but now it's a choice, right? right. You know, I mean, we shouldn't be, you know, restricting options for people. We should be opening possibilities and options. And I think that's what we see a lot when we're working with with students, and this might ring true for some of our listeners. You know, oftentimes we'll see these same accommodations, and if they are implemented, and that's to say if they're done just to be done, that's one thing. Okay, fine. But most of the time, they don't really understand the child's needs. And so chunking, you know, things in smaller groups, you know, typically works for kiddos that have executive functioning skills, deficits, I should say. And, you know, the teacher will just make smaller work portions. But to really understand that that child might need it to be even done in a different way or just like all the we just find that accommodations, they are just not properly implemented. And what was nice that you had was that support and that your parents acknowledge, okay, she might have a little bit of a lag time, but they were able to kind of, like you said, work on your strengths and you could still be successful. But oftentimes a lot of our parents don't have that expertise. So it's really frustrating for them. Or even have the ability to figure out what those strengths are. I think that we limit some of these kids' 
so much because we put a label on them or we give them a diagnosis that then everyone thinks, well, this is it. And we don't continue to discover. We don't continue to learn. And so like, you know, when we deal, you know, at schools a lot, the requirement to talk about the child's strengths. But I would say that 99% of the time, that question is glossed over. And maybe what's listed as the strength is something that the parent talked about, you know, he's friendly, or the teachers will often say, joy to have in class. Well, that's not a strength, right? It may be a strength that they are friendly and it helps their social skills, but that's not a strength that helps them with how they're learning necessarily. Hmm. And so I think that's something that is missing link. And so we've talked on our podcast with other professionals just about um, different types of therapies that can help some of our differently abled kiddos and how we can kind of be supplementing some of the academics from school to really support them. And we've had a number of questions from listeners and from people like on our Facebook group, you know, just kind of looking at you know, whether some of these like cognitive therapies or working with cognition, like are these the types of services that can only fit a certain sector of kids or because we still don't know enough about the brain and the stuff that we do know, we know that it is plastic and that there should never be a limitation on the potential a child can make. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I think, you know, certainly what I've learned in my work, there's variability in plasticity, which makes sense. There's variability in everything, like, you know, in human beings. But I would never say, you know, write off a child saying there's no plasticity. I mean, what I've seen is, you know, some students move more quickly than others and move. So it's just kind of the rate of progress. And I mean, to me, you know, what, what's exciting in the work we're doing research with a series of researchers at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, the Southern Illinois University, and then a university in Madrid in Spain. And some of this research, we're actually looking into the brains of the students that are going through this program, the program that I've developed. And to me, what's also fascinating is that we're looking at the brains of students without learning difficulties. And the first thing that's really fascinating is the differences between the brains of the students with learning difficulties and without. And what we're seeing, those students with learning difficulties, their brains are working so much harder, right? Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. Like, so they're what they call hyperconnectivity. They're these areas that are overconnected and overworked that are then compensating for areas that are underconnected. But because they can't really do the jobs of those underconnected areas, they're working harder, but inefficiently. Mm. And what we're seeing, which is, is those students experience, right? They're working really, really hard, but not necessarily getting the results that one would expect, you know, with the amount of effort they're putting in. So their brains are actually kind of mirroring what their behavior is in class. And what we're seeing over time, we're just um, analyzing the second year data, the first year data of students going through the program and our cognitive intensive, our six week summer program, is the brains of the students with learning difficulties are starting to change in that positive direction where the underconnected areas are starting to strengthen and the hyperconnected areas are starting to calm down, right? So as the underfunctioning areas are coming up, those other areas don't have to work so hard. The areas are doing what they're designed to do. So we're seeing the brain change. We're also seeing, because we're looking at social emotional behavioral changes, 
and measures. We're looking at academic measures, cognitive measures. We're seeing processing speed. We're seeing executive function. We're seeing comprehension. We're actually seeing reduction in cortisol because we know these wow. students are stressed. And so we're seeing on measures of reduction of anxiety and depression, but we're actually seeing the physiological measure of cortisol reduced. Like to me, it's really, really incredibly exciting. We're seeing, you know, you talked about executive function. We're seeing the prefrontal cortex in the brain of these students prior to the work. It's not very active, right? And we know these students struggle with organization, planning, strategizing. So their approach to learning is a bit disorganized. At the three-month mark and the one-month mark in the research, we're actually seeing the prefrontal cortex start to be activated. And we're seeing the changes also in their behavior in terms of them being able to self-regulate, to have cognitive control, to direct attention appropriately. We're seeing a really important network in the brain change. It's called the salience network. And this is the network that says, what's important? Like, what should I pay attention? What's critical? What's relevant? Because we have all this stimulation coming at us in our day, and we need to be able to step back and figure out you know, what is important. I wish I could bring you to all my IEPs, Barbara, so that yes. you could explain to people <laughs> that, you know, it is something that is from the beginning. And for Amanda and I, early intervention is everything. And I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just so excited because... The way that you explain things, I feel like I could take a whole class with you, but I'm like, we're fiercely taking <laughs> yeah. notes, you know, jotting down some of your terminology because I think half the time, you know, and it's not to the fault of the teachers, but they're just, you know, doing the accommodations, going through the motions and not really understanding right. Right. how it's all mm-hmm. connected. Just you even saying like, look, other parts of their brain are working overtime. They're going to hit a wall at a certain point, which right. is what we see with our high school kiddos. Yeah. And it's a wonder that they made it through, right. you know, elementary school. And, and the response we get so often is, well, if this child would just take more initiative or if they would just <laughs> focus more or if they would just come to school. Get them on medication. Get them on medication. Yeah. And okay. it's like it's placing so much of a burden on their will having this expectation that they have a choice in the matter, that they're just choosing to just not do their work or they're choosing not to perform. And we know that that's not the case. Oh my gosh. I remember having one student, she thought her middle name was Can Do Better. Like she actually, because that's all she heard, Devorah Can Do Better, right? You know, and really that's what she came to think that was her middle name, right? It's so just try harder. Like, and like our brains are telling us these kids are trying like, 10, 15 times right. harder. They are trying other harder. Students, but, but they are. And but because these areas are trying to do something that they weren't designed to do, they're not getting the outcome. You know, so yeah, I'm just putting together actually, which I'll send to you in the next couple of weeks, a, a document which is outlining all this research. Love um, it. <laughs> Thank you. Fascinating. And I've just the third edition of my book is just gonna be published middle of December, and there's a new chapter all on the research. Can't wait. As well. And I'm probably gonna be doing a presentation in San Francisco, I think February the fifth, right? So I know you're Southern California, but I mean we'll um, make it work just to meet you in person, Barbara, because this is an to hear you speak well of and we'll get information to put in the show notes because we have listeners up there we have listeners all over well mostly north america but other countries as well but like that i'm yeah. sure people would be really interested in because i think it's so important you know we always say like we eat breathe sleep you know this world because 
we're not the experts in all these different, you know, fields. Nobody can be an expert in all of them, right? Like, we know the law, mm-hmm. and we have the experience kind of bringing these people together, but we're constantly wanting to learn to better understand these kids so that we can better support them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think at the end of the day, most people that work with these children, they want that too, but they're not always given those opportunities. So, you know, we love highlighting events like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, my program is in, I think, 100 schools in 10 countries. So our mission now is to train teachers around the world in this methodology to get it incorporated in the school system so that, you know, students can access it. And we had the schools, there's one in Madrid, there was one in Australia, where they just took, again, students without learning difficulties, just a traditional grade three class, and the other one was a grade one class, and put 30 minutes a day, one of my cognitive programs, into that class, and all the students benefited. Yep. You know, the, yep. the one had got better planning and problem solving, the other was around motor planning for writing. Yeah. It's a huge application. I mean, it just should be a normal part of curriculum. I yeah. Mean, school to yeah. Learn and- we learn with our brain, so <laughs> why don't we like kind of put the brain in the equation of education? One hundred percent. We must sound yeah. like a broken record for our audience because that's what we always say. We say whatever it is that this special tool or strategy that is designed for you know differential learners generally applies to everybody. It helps everybody. It's something that we should be doing. It's. You know, we talk about education and we talk about the fact that we're constantly learning about more about the brain and about teaching methodologies and all of this, but we're not using it, at least not in America. I mean, I know that the United States tends to have all this research and not use it and other countries take our research and use it. And it's frustrating because we should be evolving. We should be changing. We should be utilizing the tools that we have. And I think the definition of learning, I think that it is we are stuck in the United States in this 1950s mentality and we say this all the time as well. It's like reading, writing, and arithmetic and you look at the board and that's how you learn and you know not everybody learns that way and with everything that we know now, I would love a push to have education or learning include you know the executive functioning and you know these tools that you know, maybe some teachers will teach inadvertently, but sometimes it's too little too late. You know, if I'm learning how to kind of organize notes in high school for college, it's like we should be starting that way sooner. There's things that, you know, kids very early on can learn and distinguish. And I'm sure you see that as well. So I know that you've mentioned you've worked with adults and you work with children. How young of children do you work with? Do you have an uh, age range? Yeah, I mean, the youngest I've ever worked with is, I think, four. But Oh, wow. Uh, Typically, we start around age sort of about five, six, so like grade one, and the oldest person I think was 81. Oh my God. When you talked about how like, you know, all kids benefit in your studies from these types of work, is there like a prime age or like a best age to start exposing a child to this type of like strategy or work? Yeah. Interesting. In terms of the brain and neuroplasticity, it seems any age is good. I'm passionate about starting it earlier. I mean, for me, I started to work when I was 26 and I had a lot of emotional baggage. I'd attempted suicide at age 13, you know, that I had to deal with, you know, because I'd struggled for all those years. You start in grade one and you just make it a normal part of curriculum. There's no stigma because there's still... Exactly. Exactly. Stigma associated with having a learning difficulty, which breaks my heart. But if you just start in grade one and it's a normal part of curriculum, everybody's doing it. 
you know, there's no stigma. Everybody benefits. And, you know, some students might need a little more because they have more areas than other students that don't. But then they just go through their schooling experience without any of that stigma and any of the hitting the wall, all of those kind of experiences. So for emotional reasons, ideally, the earlier we can start, However, in terms of the brain, I mean, I worked with a retired professor at the University of Toronto and she was uh, in the medical school and she'd never been able to recognize faces. And at 74, she made the same progress as a 12 year old, right? So what? it doesn't- That's incredible. It's encouraging as I'm getting older. plasticity <laughs> <laughs> here. So it doesn't seem to matter, but I think the earlier we can do the intervention, you know, for the rest of that individual's life the better yeah absolutely well you know we talk about you know that those preschool ages of three to five we're really teaching them learning to learn you know and those what are often called the pre-epidemic skills right and you know this sounds like it, it would be a perfect fit for that and you know if only we had universal preschool and we had this embedded in it <laughs> right right well, now yeah. it's our quest to try to help yeah, figure this out. In this. We're going to okay. take a cue from uh, your father. I'm curious, Barbara, are there any states here in the United States that have schools with your program? Yes, thank you. There are several. Like, I should know, but I don't have them listed. But on our website, which is arrowsmithschool.org, there's a thing that says participating schools, and it will it's broken down by country. So if you go under the United States, you'll see, yes, there I don't know if there are any in California right now, but there are definitely absolutely schools in the United States that offer my program. So yes. All right. We're going to, if there are none in California, see how we can help get them in California. I would love that. That would be, I mean, incredible. And especially because, you know, this is something that Amanda and I are still, you know, researching and getting familiar with and just everything that you've shared with our listeners, I know hits right at home for them. And if they would like to try to contact you, I know that you've already given out the website. Is there an email that they can reach out to or is everything through the website? Everything's through the website, but there's, uh, I think I should know. I mean, they can send to my email and I can forward it on. So mine is byoung, B-Y-O-U-N-G, at arrowsmithprogram.ca. Oh, excellent. So, so I probably won't be the person that directly answers that, but I'll make sure it gets forwarded to the person that, you know, would answer because, yeah, I mean, we have a, people that are happy to talk to schools all around the world to talk about how we can implement this program in school systems. That's wonderful. We were so excited to have you on and we're so glad that you were able to really give us a good, you know, brief dive into this idea because I think it's such a needed topic to talk about. I think we like to change the conversation and start the conversation about things that people aren't talking about. Education in general just isn't talked about enough, you know, especially when you look at, you know, things that politicians talk about and what's on their agenda. And, you know, that's something we're trying to change, obviously. But I think the general public not being aware of this really buys into the stigma more. And so our main goal with this podcast is really trying to end this stigma and really try to make sure that everyone kind of understands that like these kids are kids and you know we need to be looking at all kids the same and looking at them that they deserve this good quality education just like anybody else. So I think 
this research that you have is wonderful and really gives some great insight. Hopefully our listeners can take a look at your website and dive even deeper. But one of the things we love ending our interviews with is see if we can get like a good feel good story um, or a success story out of our guests. If you have one you'd like to share. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I've got lots, but I think of this one young boy, I think he was 11. He lives in Sicily, of all places, in Italy. I met him actually in Munich. I was there for some medical appointments in Germany a few years ago, and Uh it just happened to be the grandson of the specialist that I was seeing, and and my heart went out to him because it, it was really clear, you know, he didn't want to go to school. He had tremendous anxiety, really bright young boy, but like these students, but struggling with reading. And I saw myself in him, right? The same kinds of difficulties I had. And I found it so fascinating. His mother was saying, you know, the, the school that he's at, and he said, was at an international school. The teacher said, we don't like to label children here. So I'm not going to say he's dyslexic. He's just lazy. Oh, and I thought, oh wow. Gosh, like, that's, that's a label. <laughs> that's a label. Like, oh, I just, you know, my mouth dropped open. Yeah. And the testament to this mother, I mean, she had just four children and her youngest was just an infant. So she picks up from Sicily, flies to Toronto to put her son in my six week intensive program. And even his siblings started to see changes over the six weeks. And this was a boy that he wouldn't even look you in the eye. Like his head was down. He was so defeated, right? Partway through, I mean, you actually could see the color of his eyes because he would look at you, engage, start conversations. But then he goes back home. And this is the boy that's lazy, right? Right. And decides, you know, he, he had a really nice design sense. So he decided he's going to set up a t-shirt company. And so he does all the research, which he has to read, right? He has to figure out, he figures out pricing, he figures out where he can get the designs made. He starts a whole t-shirt company online, right? You know, from lazy to, you know, you just can't slow him down. And then he came back this summer because he needed some more work on this, this function. But I think, like, imagine, I just, like, it boggles the mind that, you know, he's been put in this box of being written off at age 11 and here he is with that, you know, that cognitive, you know, stimulation to, you know, be able to use his gifts. I didn't give him the design gifts. I mean, he had those already, but because of his difficulties, he couldn't use them. Because if we think about, you know, he was having to work so hard just to tread water that he had no energy left over to use his gifts. I mean, uh-huh. now he doesn't have to work so hard to function. So those gifts are freed up. I mean, it's just, to me, this work is so promising and powerful. It really is cognitive transformation that opens worlds up to the individual. So, you know, I've dedicated my life and I tell the students, you know, my favorite part of my job is when I get to go out to all students. And every student, because we track all the data, has a student number, right? So I yeah. always, I'm like, I'm student 0001. <laughs> I'm kind of like student zero, ground zero. Right. You know, so I know their journey and their story. And, you know, I'm committed to um, changing the trajectory of suffering and pain to one of hope and optimism and possibility. It is incredible work. We are so happy that we got to speak to you. Everybody has something, and our quest really is to provide that equal opportunity, and you help tremendously in helping us do that with the work that you're doing 
We so appreciate your time, Barbara. Thank you so much. You guys check out the show notes and definitely check out her website for more information. Barbara, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.